Chapter 7 of The Measurement of Intelligence by Lewis Terman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Leon Harvey. Chapter 7 Reliability of the Binet Simon Method. General Value of the Method. In a former chapter, we have noted certain imperfections of the scale devised by Binet and Simon, namely, that many of the tests were not correctly located that the choice of tests was in a few cases unsatisfactory, that the directions for giving and scoring the tests were sometimes too indefinite, and that the upper and lower ranges of the scale especially stood in need of extensions and corrections. All of these faults have been quite generally admitted. The method itself, however, after being put to the test by psychologists of all countries and all faiths, by the sceptical as well as the friendly, has amply demonstrated its value. The agreement on the point is as completely as it is regarding the scale's imperfections. The following quotations from prominent psychologists who have studied the method will serve to show how it is regarded by those most entitled to an opinion. There can be no question about the fact that the Binet-Simon tests do not make half as frequent or half as great errors in the mental ages of feeble-minded children as are included in gradings based on careful, prolonged general observation by experienced observers. All the different authors who have made these researches with Binet's method are in a great way unanimous in recognizing that the principle of the scale is extremely fortunate, and all believe that it offers the basis of a most useful method for the examination of intelligence. It serves as a relatively simple and speedy method of securing, by means accessible to everyone, a true insight into the average level of ability of a child between 3 and 15 years of age that despite the differences in race and language, despite the divergences in school organization and in methods of instruction, there should be so decided agreement in the reactions of the children is, in my opinion, the best vindication of the principle of the tests that one could imagine, because this agreement demonstrates that the tests do actually reach and discover the general developmental conditions of intelligence, so far as these are operative in public school children of the present cultural epoch and not mere fragments of knowledge and attainments acquired by chance. It is without doubt the most satisfactory and accurate method of determining a child's intelligence that we have, and so far superior to everything else which has been proposed that as yet is nothing else to be considered. The value of the method lies both in the swiftness and the accuracy with which it works. One who knows how to apply the test correctly and who is experienced in the psychological interpretation of responses can in 40 minutes arrive at a more accurate judgment as to a subject's intelligence than would be possible without the tests after months or even years of close observation. The reasons for this have already been set forth. The difference is something like that between measuring a person's height with a yardstick and estimating it by guess. That this is not an unfair statement of the case is well shown by the following candid confession by a psychologist who tested 200 juvenile delinquents brought before Judge Lindsay's court. As a matter of interest, I estimated the mental ages of 150 of my subjects before testing them. In 54 of the estimates, the error was not more than one year in either direction. 70 of the subjects were estimated too high the average error being two years and seven months. Twenty-six of the subjects were estimated too low, the average error being two years and two months. These figures would seem to imply that an estimate with nothing to support it is wholly unreliable, more especially as many of the estimates were four or five years wide of the mark. Criticisms of the Binet method have also been frequently voiced, but chiefly by persons who have had little experience with it or by those whose scientific training highly justifies an opinion. 
it cannot be too strongly emphasized that eminence in law, medicine, education, or any other profession does not of itself enable anyone to pass judgment on the validity of a psychological method. Dependence of the scale's reliability on the training of the examiner. On this point, two radically different opinions have been urged. On the one hand, some have insisted that the results of a test made by other than a thoroughly trained psychologist are absolutely worthless. At the opposite extreme are a few who seem to think that any teacher or physician can secure perfectly valid results after a few hours' acquaintance with the tests. The dispute is one which cannot be settled by the assertion of opinion, and unfortunately, thoroughgoing investigations have not yet made as to the frequency and extent of errors made by untrained, partially trained examiners. The only study of this kind which has so far been reported is the following. Dr. Coe's gives the results of tests made by 58 inexperienced teachers who were taking a summer course in the training school at Vinland. The class met three times a week for instruction in the use of the Binet scale. During the first week, the students listened to three lectures by Dr. Goddard. The second week was given over to demonstration testing. Each student saw four children tested and attended two discussion periods for an hour each. During the third, fourth and fifth weeks, each student tested one child per week and observed the testing of two others. The student was allowed to carry the test through his own way but received criticism after it was finished. Twice a week, Dr. Goddard spent an hour with the class discussing experimental procedure. The subjects tested were feeble-minded children whose exact mental ages were already known, and for this reason it was possible to check up the accuracy of each student's work. Coe's table of results for the trial testing of the 174 children showed 1. That 50% of the work was exact as anyone in the laboratory could make it. 2. That in an additional 38% of the results were within three-fifths of a year of being exact. 3. That nearly 90% of the work of the summer students was sufficiently accurate for all practical purposes. 4. That the records improved during the brief training so that during the third week only one test missed the real mental age by as much as a year. Since hardly any of these students had any previous experience with the Binet tests, Dr. Coe seems to be entirely justified in his conclusion that it is possible, in the brief period of six weeks, to teach people to use the tests with a reasonable degree of accuracy. What shall we say of the teacher, or of the physician, who had not even had this amount of instruction? The writer's experience forces him to agree with Binet and with Dr. Goddard that anyone with intelligence enough to be a teacher and who is willing to devote conscientious study to the mastery of the technique can use the scale accurately enough to get a better idea of a child's mental endowment than it could possibly get in any other way. It is necessary, however, for the untrained person to recognize his own lack of experience, and in no case would it be justifiable to base important action or scientific conclusions upon the results of the inexpert examiner. As Bennett himself repeatedly insisted, the method is not absolutely mechanical, and cannot be made so by elaboration of instructions. It is sometimes held that the examination and classification of backward children for special instruction should be carried out by the school physicians. The fact is, however, that there is nothing in the physician's training to give him any advantage over the ordinary teacher in the use of the Binet tests. Because of her more intimate knowledge of children and because of her superior tact and adaptability, the average teacher is perhaps better equipped than the average physician to give intelligence tests. Finally, it should be emphasized that whatever the previous training or experience of the examiner may have been, his ability to adjust to the child's personality and his willingness to follow conscientiously the directions for giving the tests are important factors in his equipment. Influence of the subject's attitude One continually meets such queries as, how do you know the subject did his best? Possibly the child was nervous or frightened, or perhaps incorrect answers were purposely given. 
All such objections may be disposed of by saying that the competent examiner can easily control the experiment in such a way that embarrassment is soon replaced by self-confidence and in such a way that effort is kept at its maximum. As for mischievous deception, it would be a poor clinicist who could not recognize and deal with the little that is likely to arise. Cautions regarding embarrassment, fatigue, fright, illness, etc. are given in Chapter 9. Most of the errors which have been reported along this line are such as can nearly always be avoided by ordinary prudence, coupled with a little power of observation. We must not charge the mistakes of untrained and indiscreet examiners against the validity of the method itself. It is possibly true that even if the examiner is tactful and prudent, an unfavorable attitude on the part of the subject may occasionally affect the results of a test to some extent, but it ought not seriously to invalidate one examination out of 500. The greatest danger is in the case of a young subject who has been recently arrested and brought before a court. Even here, a little common sense and scientific insight should enable one to guard against a mistaken diagnosis. The Influence of Coaching it might be supposed that after the intelligence scale had been used with a few pupils in a given school, all of their fellows would soon be appraised of the nature of the tests, and so learn the correct responses. Experience shows, however, that there is little likelihood of such influence except in the case of a small minority of the tests. Experiments in the psychology of testimony have demonstrated that children's ability to report upon a complex set of experiences is astonishingly weak. In testing with the Stanford revision, a child is ordinarily given from 24 to 30 different tests, many of which are made up of three or more items. Of the total 40 to 50 items, the child is ordinarily able to report but few, and those not always correctly. Such tests as memory for sentences and digits, drawing the square and diamond, reproducing the designs from memory, comparing weights and lines, describing and interpreting pictures, aesthetic comparison, vocabulary, dissecting sentences, fables, reading for memories, finding differences and similarities, arithmetical reasoning, and the form-born test are hardly subject to a report at all. While almost any of the other tests might theoretically be communicated, there is little danger that many of them will be. It is assumed, of course, that the examiner will take proper precautions to prevent any of his blanks or other material from falling into the hands of those who are to be examined. The following tests are the ones most subject to the influence of coaching. Ball and field, giving date, naming 60 words, finding rhymes, changing hands of clock, comprehension of physical relations, induction test, and ingenuity test. In several instances, we have interviewed children an hour or two after they have taken the examination in order to find out how many of the tests they could recall. A boy of four years, after repeated questioning, could only say, he showed me some pictures. He had a knife and a penny. He told me to shut the door. A girl of three years could recall nothing whatever that was intelligible. An eight-year-old boy said he'd maybe tie a knot. He asked me about a ship and an auto. He wanted me to count backwards. He made me say over some things, numbers and things. A boy of twelve years said he told me to say all the words I could think of. He said some foolish things and asked what was foolish. He could not repeat a single absurdity. I had to put some blocks together. I had to do some problems in arithmetic. He could not repeat a single problem. He read some fables to me. Asked about the fables, he was able to recall only part of one, and that of the fox and the crow. He showed me the pictures of a field, and wanted to know how to find a ball. It is evident from the above samples of report that the danger of coaching increases considerably with the age of the children concerned. With young subjects, the danger is hardly present at all. With children of the upper grammar grades in the high school, and most, if all of the prisons and reformatories, it must be taken into account. 
Alternative tests may sometimes be used to advantage when there is evidence of coaching on any of the regular tests. It would be desirable to have two or three additional scales which could be used interchangeably with the Binet-Simon. Reliability of the repeated tests Will the same tests give consistent results when used repeatedly with the same subject? In general, we may say that they do. Something depends, however, on the age and intelligence of the subject and on the time interval between the examinations. Goddard proves that feeble-minded individuals whose intelligence has reached its full development continue to test at exactly the same mental age by the Binet scale, year after year. In their case, familiarity with the tests does not in the least improve the responses. At each retesting, the responses given at previous examinations are repeated with only the most trivial variations. Of 352 feeble-minded children tested at Fineland three years in succession, 109 gave absolutely no variation. 232 showed a variation of not more than two-fifths of a year, while 22 gained as much as one year in the three tests. The latter, presumably, were younger children whose intelligence was still developing. Goddard has also tested 464 public school children for three successive years. Approximately half of these showed normal progress or more in mental age, while most of the remainder showed somewhat less than normal progress. Bobotag's retesting of 83 normal children after an interval of a year gave results entirely in harmony with those of Goddard. The reapplication of the tests showed absolutely no influence of familiarity, the correlation of the two tests being almost perfect, 0.95. Those who tested at age in the first test had advanced on the average exactly one year. Those who tested plus in the first test advanced in the 12 months about a year and a quarter, as we should expect those to do whose mental development is accelerated. Correspondingly, those who tested minus at the first test advanced only about three-fourths of a year in mental age during the interval. Our own results with a mixed group of normal, superior, dull and feeble-minded children agree fully with the above findings. In this case, the two tests were separated by an interval of two to four years and the correlation between their results was practically perfect. The average difference between the IQ obtained in the second test and that obtained in the first test was only 4% and the greatest difference found was only 8%. The repetition of the tests at shorter intervals will perhaps affect the results somewhat more, but the influence is much less than one might expect. The writer has tested, at intervals of only a few days to a few weeks, 14 backward children of 12 to 18 years and 8 normal children of 5 to 13 years. The backward children showed an average improvement in the second test of about 2 months in mental age. The normal children an average improvement of little more than 3 months. No child varied in the second test more than half a year from the mental age first secured. On the whole, normal children profit more from the experience of previous tests than do the backward and feeble-minded. Berry tested 45 normal children and 50 defectives with the Binet 1908 and 1911 scales at brief intervals. The author does not state which scale was applied first, but the mental ages secured by the two scales were practically the same when allowances was made for the slightly greater difficulty of the 1911 series of tests. We may conclude, therefore, that while it would probably be desirable to have one or more additional scales for alternative use in testing the same children at very brief intervals, the same scale may be used for repeated tests at intervals of a year or more with little danger of serious inaccuracy. Moreover, results like those set forth above are important evidence as to the validity of the test method. The influence of social and educational advantages. The criticism has often been made that the responses to many of the tests are so much subject to the influence of school and home environment as seriously to invalidate the scale as a whole. Some of the tests most often named in this connection are the following giving age and sex, 
naming common objects, colors and coins, giving the value of stamps, giving date, naming the months of the year and the days of the week, distinguishing forenoon and afternoon, counting, making change, reading from memories, naming 60 words, giving definitions, finding rhymes, and constructing a sentence containing three given words. It has in fact been found, wherever comparisons have been made, that children of superior social status yield a higher average mental age than children of the labouring classes. The results of De Clory and De Gand, and of Newman, Stern, and Bennett himself, may be referred to in this connection. In the case of the Stanford investigation also, it was found that when the unselected school children were grouped in three classes according to social status, superior, average, and inferior, the average IQ for the superior social group was 107, and that of the inferior social group 93. This is equivalent to a difference of one year in mental age with seven-year-olds and to a difference of two years with 14-year-olds. However, the common opinion that the child from a cultured home does better in tests solely by reason of superior home advantages is an entirely gratuitous assumption. Practically all of the investigations which have been made of the influence of nature and nurture on mental performance agree in attributing far more to original endowment than to environment. Common observation would itself suggest that the social class to which the family belongs depends less on chance than on the parents' native qualities of intellect and character. The results of five separate and distinct lines of inquiry based on the Stanford data agree in supporting the conclusion that the children of successful and cultured parents test higher than children from wretched and ignorant homes for the simple reason that their hereditary is better. The results of this investigation are set forth in full elsewhere. It would, of course, be going too far to deny all possibility of environmental conditions affecting the result of an intelligence test. Certainly, no one would expect that a child reared in a cage and denied all intercourse with other human beings could be, by any system of mental measurement, test up to the level of normal children. There is, however, no reason to believe that ordinary differences in social environment, apart from hereditary, differences such as those obtaining among unselected children attending approximately the same general type of school in a civilized community, affects to any great extent the validity of the scale. A crucial experiment would be to take a large number of very young children of the lower classes and, after placing them in the most favorable environment obtainable, to compare their later mental development with that of children born into the best homes. No extensive study of this kind has been made, but the writer has tested 20 orphaned children who for the most part had come from very inferior homes. They had been in a well-conducted orphanage from two to several years and had enjoyed during that time the advantages of an excellent village school. Nevertheless, all but three tested below average, ranging from 75 to 90 IQ. The impotence of school instruction to neutralize individual differences in native endowment will be evident to anyone who follows the school career of backward children. The children who are seriously retarded in school are not normal and cannot be made normal by any refinement of educational method. As a rule, the longer the inferior child attends school, the more evident his inferiority becomes. It would hardly be reasonable, therefore, to expect that a little incidental instruction in the home would weigh very heavily against the same native differences in endowment. Cases like the following show conclusively that it does not. X is the son of unusually intelligent and well-educated parents. The home is everything one would expect of people of scholarly pursuits and cultivated tastes, but X has always been irresponsible, troublesome, childish and queer. He learned to walk at two years, to talk at three, and has always been delicate and nervous. When brought for examination, he was eight years old. He had twice attempted schoolwork, but could accomplish nothing and was withdrawn. His play life was not normal, and other children, younger than himself, abused and tormented him. 
The Binet test gave an IQ of approximately 75. That is, the retardation amounted to about two years. The child was examined again three years later. At that time, after attending school two years, he had recently completed the first grade. This time, the IQ was 73. Strange to say, the mother is encouraged and hopeful because she sees that her boy is learning to read. She does not seem to realize that at his age, he ought to be within three years of entering high school. The 40-minute test had told more about his mental ability of this boy than the intelligent mother had been able to learn in 11 years of daily and hourly observation. For X is feeble-minded. He will never complete the grammar school. He will never be an efficient worker or a responsible citizen. Let us change the picture. Z is a bright-eyed, dark-skinned girl of nine years. She is dark-skinned because her father is a mixture of Indian and Spanish. The mother is of Irish descent. With her strangely mated parents and two brothers, she lives in a dirty, cramped, and poorly furnished house in the country. The parents are illiterate, and the brothers are retarded and dull, though not feeble-minded. It is Z's turn to be tested. I inquire the name. It is familiar, for I have already tested the two stupid brothers. I also know her ignorant parents and the miserable cabin in which she lives. The examination begins with the eight-year tests. The responses are quick and accurate. We proceed to the nine-year group. There is no failure, and there is but one minor error. Successes and failures alternate for a while, until the latter prevail. Z has tested at eleven years. In spite of her wretched home, she is mentally advanced nearly 25%. By the vocabulary test, she is credited with the knowledge of nearly 6,000 words, or nearly four times as many as X, the boy of cultured home and scholarly parents, had learned by the age of eight years. Five years have passed. When given the test, Z was in the fourth grade and, as we have already stated, nine years of age. As a result of the test, she was transferred to the fifth grade. Later, she skipped again and, at the age of 14, is a successful student in the second year of high school. To assay her intelligence and determine its quality was a task of 45 minutes. The above cases, each of which could be paralleled by many others which we have found, will serve to illustrate the fact that exceptionally superior endowment is discoverable by the tests, however unfavorable the home from which it comes, and that inferior endowment cannot be normalized by all the advantages of the most cultured home. Quoting again from Stern, the tests actually reach and discover the general developmental conditions of intelligence and not mere fragments of knowledge and attainments acquired by chance. End of chapter 7 of The Measurement of Intelligence Read by Leon Harvey